You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Obvious, Misfit, Sean, Lee, David, Torso and Pinches, Matt, Hangman Strain, Sir Rancid Cheese, Shelby, Andrew, Axios, Richard, Hartman, Skipper, The Sextant, Brian, Cap'n Crunch, Roger the Jolly, Vibran, Artemis Killmeister, Carcos, Rotary Coast, M.D., Lost Again, The Navigator, Vasios, Doc Lindsay, Pitlock, Ward, Workman, Chairboat, Gunsway Sally, Cannon Monkey, Rum Runner, Madame Anita Sparrow, Hefe, Bull, Vertigon, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. Before we get going today, I want to take a quick detour from the Western Front of the War of the Spanish Succession and talk about what's going on in the East. Back before the Nine Years' War even began, there was another conflict between Austria and the Ottoman Empire. This war is called the Great Turkish War, or sometimes the War of the Holy League. The Holy League was an alliance of a number of different nations and kingdoms, similar to the Grand Alliance fighting against France in the War of the Spanish Succession. But here we're looking mostly at Eastern powers. Austria, Poland-Lithuania, Venice, and Russia, primarily. The enemy was the Ottoman Empire, but the goal of the war, the war aim, was Hungary. If you were to oversimplify the conflict, it could be seen as a war between the Christian states of Europe and the Muslim Ottoman Empire over the fate of Hungary. It's a lot more complicated than that, of course. Once you get into the internal politics of the Kingdom of Hungary and look at the divisions between Christian and Muslim within the kingdom, and then, of course, there are the outside states in Wallachia and Transylvania that have their own role to play. Then the descendants of the Mongol Empire get involved, and it just turns into a huge mess. None of that really matters for our story. The Ottomans attacked the Austrian capital at Vienna and broke against the gates. It's a famous moment in world history, and 
is sometimes characterized as the beginning of the end of the Ottoman Empire. That might be going a bit far, but it's definitely the point at which the territorial trend of the Ottoman Empire goes from one of expansion to contraction. They begin to shrink. The 1700s are going to be a time of constant external pressure from Austria, Poland, Russia, and the Ottoman Empire is going to get a lot smaller by consequence. More relevant to our story of the War of the Spanish Succession, though, is something called Rakoczy's War of Independence. See, during the War of the Holy League, a large number of Hungarian noblemen, including Rakoczy, fought for independence from the Ottoman Empire. They allied themselves with the Holy League, fighting alongside the Austrians and the Russians. And then they won. The Ottoman Empire pulled out of Hungary. What these Hungarian noblemen did not expect, however, was to be incorporated into the Holy Roman Empire. Officially, that's not what happened. The Kingdom of Hungary continued to exist, but that's not how it really worked. Or maybe if they were officially part of the empire, maybe things would have been better for Hungary. Instead, though, they were exploited by the Austrians. Everything that the House of Habsburg might need for the war with France, they just took it from Hungary. Food, money, men to fight their war, everything. The soldiers that were tasked with securing all of these resources did so in the most brutal fashion imaginable. They would take all the food, all the money, all the loose valuables, all the wine, all the men of fighting age, and all the women. Of course, they'd leave the women when they left, most of them with children in their bellies. It was a brutal, brutal occupation for the Hungarians. Which led naturally, to peasant revolts and unrest in the countryside and occasionally open guerrilla warfare. A group of semi-enlightened Hungarian nobility, including Rakoczy, decided to harness this unrest and guide it at the right people, the Austrians. It's an interesting independence movement because there's a ton of language that reads kind of liberal-ish, very early Enlightenment. Some of those enlightened nobles were calling for a constitutional monarchy, but there were a few going much farther than that, a few calling for an outright republic to demolish the Kingdom of Hungary for the Republic of Hungary. And this is happening in 1701. For the time, it's about as radical as you can get. We're still about 70 years away from any of this coming to fruition in places like the U.S. or in France. But don't get too excited. Rakoczy and his semi-enlightened noble brethren are going to lose their war of independence. Liberal democracy is an idea whose time has not yet come, but it was an idea that did exist. You know, when a lot of people talk about pirate politics, they tend to dismiss even the notion that democratic self-rule was really on the table. And there's something super elitist and classist about that to me. You know, it seems to be a bunch of professors that are saying, well, if professors and lawyers and bankers hadn't yet wrapped their minds around the idea of liberal self-government, then how could a bunch of poor sailors get that idea in their pretty little heads? But these ideas existed. 
out in the wild. They were there. People were talking about it. It wasn't just a few philosophers and their ivory towers. They would have to do the catching up later on. Rakaxi's War of Independence is not the only peasant revolt we're going to see in this war that is based around a government by the people for the people. Right now, in the Netherlands, there are a ton of people looking around at their situation and going, well, William of Orange is dead. And, hey guys, remember how we're supposed to be a republic? The Dutch Republic? Maybe we should start acting like it. There are going to be a lot of movements for more representative self-government all around Europe during this war. Now, all of that's an idea that I want you to keep in the back of your mind, because as this war moves on, it's going to become more and more important to our story. For now, though, on the war front, Rakaxi's War of Independence is going to last for eight long years. It's going to be a constant thorn in the side of Austria, and the Holy Roman Empire is going to have to devote important troops to Hungary, while Marlborough is given the task of defending the Rhineland. This is episode 304, Conflicts of Command. On 23 April 1702, Anne Stuart was crowned Queen of England, Scotland, and Ireland. Almost as soon as the crown was on her head, England declared war on France. Queen Anne was committed to prosecuting that war. However, war was not seen as a woman's business. Any actual control she might have over the war, despite the fact that she was now queen, would have to be done surreptitiously. Queen Elizabeth had been able to get away with quite a bit of actually commanding her generals and her armies. Anne would not have that luxury. You know, her brother-in-law, William, had been an excellent figurehead for the Allied war effort. He'd also been at least capable when it comes to organizing and delegating command. When he died, that left a real vacancy in the Allied ranks. And regardless of whether or not she had the ability or the intelligence, it was a vacancy that Queen Anne just would not be able to fill. She might now stand as a symbol of Britain and her people and all of their grand traditions, but not war. Her husband, though, would make an excellent figurehead. So Prince George of Denmark was named Generalissimo of the English Army and Lord High Admiral of the Royal Navy. He would now have the very important job, the critical role even, of wearing military uniforms at court. But that's about it. He really didn't have any power. The real power in the English armed forces belonged to the Churchill brothers. George Churchill was the de facto head of the Admiralty, actually doing the job of running the Navy. And George Churchill was pretty close friends with Prince George of Denmark. So when the prince decided to poke his nose into military affairs, he usually did so at the Admiralty. As for their armies, John Churchill, Earl of Marlborough, was given a host of new ranks and titles and responsibilities. He and his wife, Sarah, were very close to Queen Anne, so he was promoted well above what many people thought should have been his rank. The new queen made him a Knight of the Garter, which is the senior most order of English knighthood. 
She also made him Keeper of the Privy Purse, which is kind of like the treasurer of the royal household. And finally, she made him Captain General of the Armies of England. That's basically the Commander-in-Chief, technically one step under Prince George. Marlborough spent the next few weeks preparing the English forces for war. They were training recruits like Mark Reed for duty, and then the English armies set sail across the Channel for the Netherlands. They arrived on the 30th of June, 1702, with a force of 60,000. When they finally stepped foot in the Netherlands, though, Marlborough encountered quite a bit more resistance to his command than he probably expected. Thanks to a lot of agreements that had been made when William of Orange was still alive and before Marlborough was officially in charge of the English army, Marlborough was going to be in charge of all Allied forces on the continent. That included the English, obviously, but also the Dutch and the Germans. His personal theater of operations would be limited to the Rhineland, Flanders, and the Low Countries, but he was also officially in command of all the forces on the border between France and Germany, all the way down to Italy. The only two fronts that were not his direct responsibility were a very newly opened front over in Portugal, who just entered the war at the 11th hour, and the Eastern Front on the other side of Austria. But Marlborough was still relatively young and relatively inexperienced. Most of his actual experience in commanding troops in the field was as a cavalry officer. He might make on-the-ground, up-to-the-minute decisions, and did well doing so, but the huge, sprawling tactical decisions were still up to his superiors until now. And a lot of the other commanders there in the Netherlands were upset by this state of affairs. The German forces, the Hanoverians and the Prussians, had a bunch of well-seasoned old men that they really thought deserved the command over Marlborough. Men who had been steeped in military tradition their entire lives and now were all about 70 years old. They probably would have been a disaster because they still had a lot of old-fashioned ideas about military strategy in their head. Marlborough was going to do a lot of things that they probably would never have considered and saw many times as irresponsible. The Netherlands had their own heroes as well, many of whom are going to play major roles in the battles to come. But they also expected the command. Instead, they were put under the thumb of this untested boy. He would be allowed to give them orders, and it upset a lot of those Dutch commanders. But then the news got even worse for Marlborough. He found that both the Germans and the Dutch had kept a lot of their forces back from this huge Allied army gathering in the Netherlands. They needed it for, you know, home front defense, and I don't think anyone can argue with that. But it became clear to Marlborough, and really everybody, that the forces the Germans and Dutch were keeping from him were their best-trained, most experienced, and best-led armies. What they sent on to Marlborough's army were mostly the dregs and the raw recruits. And all of this new information was heaped on Marlborough in the span of just a few hours. 
he showed up and immediately learned that he was walking into a much less than optimal situation. He realized also that he was going to have to work around it. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. While the Allied armies were preparing to march, France was on the offensive. Marshal General Boufflet, and thanks to those of you who corrected my pronunciation of boufflers, the Marshal was securing France's position all along the Rhine. He was capturing fortress cities and, more importantly, positioning armies all around the region that could be deployed at a moment's notice to defend key crossings. Boufflet was digging in and entrenching the French forces all around the region, and it was going to be up to Marlborough to dig him out. Marlborough moved his forces south to engage a few of the fortress cities in the Low Countries. His main force, the largest part of the army, it moved amazingly quickly. Nearly all the other generals, those under his command, didn't think you could move as fast as Marlborough showed them you could, Honestly, nobody would move quite this quickly again until Napoleon. But all of those old generals, steeped in decades of military tradition, they were a bit appalled by Marlborough. And it turned out that none of them could move anywhere nearly as quickly as Marlborough and his allied army. In July, Marlborough set a trap for the French, and Boufflet fell right into it. It began, like all good traps do, with irresistible bait. Marlborough moved his army so fast that they were well ahead of their baggage train, of their supplies. At a certain point, it would take their baggage train a couple of days to catch up with the army, and that's if Marlborough stood still, which of course leaves the baggage train incredibly weak. Some French scouts noticed this, naturally, and reported it back to their officers, and Boufflet had to pounce. It looked very much like the unseasoned English commander, a man who nobody really knew yet, but it looked like he was making some serious rookie mistakes. That's partly why those Dutchmen were so appalled. Boufflet was going to capitalize on that. He moved his French force in to destroy the baggage train, but when the French arrived, the supply wagons were guarded by Marlborough's entire army. What Marlborough had done here 
was speed ahead of his baggage train to make them look weak. Then, when he knew that the French scouts had had time to take a look and report, he turned his army around and marched backward to catch the French army that he knew would attack them. It was an impressive military feat, and he pulled it off perfectly. But there is a catch. Marlborough sent orders to one of the Dutch commanders nearby to move on the French from the rear. He told them where to be and when to be there, and he said that if they made it, they could catch the entire French force under Boufflet between their two armies. They would be surrounded and utterly defeated. It was a dashing plan, an excellent plan. But the Dutch general that Marlborough had ordered to move on the French rear moved way too slowly. His army absolutely could have been there on the day, but they were nowhere to be seen. Instead, Boufflet just showed up, saw this huge Anglo-Dutch army waiting for him, and decided it would be the smart move to turn around and leave. Now, had this succeeded, had Marlborough's plot worked as he intended, it's the kind of action that could have ended the war here and now. You know, maybe not immediately. The French would have had time to reinforce, raise taxes, gather new supplies. But it would have been a huge blow to their economy and their morale. The pressure that a defeat like that would have put on France would have been almost insurmountable. Instead, though... Dutch general was just found lollygagging. There have been a bunch of questions about exactly why the Dutch general failed to appear. The theories seem to be almost endless. My favorite theory, and it's not the one that I believe, but it's the most fun, it's about gluttony. See, the Netherlands had this reputation. They were a rich, rich country, thanks to, you know, the slave trade, and they were pretty opulent. Not in a let's build Versailles kind of way, but more in a let's get really into art and chocolate, and let's put sugar in our coffee and have pineapple after every meal kind of way. Food and beer and cheese and chocolate were huge national pastimes, and the Dutch had this reputation for being fat. And I don't want to cast any aspersions here. As an American in the 21st century, I know how it can be. But when you look at paintings of all of these Dutch military leaders during this period, they do tend to be kind of fat. And this is that whole period, especially in art history, where a bit of portliness tended to be seen as kind of respectable. It was a status symbol. And, you know, the women in all of those great paintings of the era tended to get more and more round, which I can respect. But these Dutchmen tended to be just kind of fat. And it doesn't help that the Dutch did have kind of a tradition, at least among the upper crust, to eat sort of like hobbits. 
They'd start the day with a long, leisurely breakfast of coffee and tobacco and conversation about the arts. Then they'd work for a couple of hours, and then a long lunch, round about ten in the morning. A lunch that, I should note, also usually involved the first beers of the day. Then they'd work for a couple hours more, and by about six o'clock it's time to dine properly. And here we're talking about roasted meat, candied apples, and chocolate. And of course, more beer. Now, to me, obviously, that sounds like a pretty perfect day. But when you're on campaign, a military maneuver, maybe it's time to put down the fork and step up. This lackadaisical approach may have had something with the Dutch failure to appear on the battlefield when Marlborough needed them, but I don't actually think that's what kept them from the fighting. Naturally, there have been accusations of treachery, of treason, accusations that the Dutch general was offered French jewels, and maybe French lands, and who knows, maybe a French wife, anything his little heart might want, if only he failed to do his job. However, I find that difficult to believe. The argument that always seemed most reasonable to me was jealousy. I mean, here comes this hotshot young Englishman. He just takes command, and on the orders of a foreign queen, he starts telling you how to do your job. Then he gives you orders to move out. And if you did as he told you to do, he would win a major victory just a couple of weeks into the war. He would get all the glory, all the prestige, and all the credit you would get maybe a pat on the head. That was simply unacceptable. Generals, especially at the time, but really throughout literally all of recorded history, tend to be a jealous, vindictive, and backbiting lot, especially among their peers. And I think that's exactly what was happening here. So Boufflet escaped with his army. Marlborough was furious. He'd played his hand right out in the open, and it gained him nothing. Now Boufflet had seen just the kind of man that Marlborough was, just the kind of maneuver that he was willing to pull, and he would in the future be able to plan accordingly. Marlborough lost the element of surprise. So instead of a shocking victory, Marlborough and the Allies were forced to rely on more traditional warfare. He proceeded to lay siege to a number of fortress cities in the region. His first target was Venlo, a city on the border between the Netherlands and the region known as Cologne. Cologne is a city, today inside the borders of Germany, but at the time it was a powerful regional electorate in the Holy Roman Empire. But Thanks to the proximity to France and Belgium, Cologne tended to be on pretty friendly terms with the French. I mean, the French kept marching their armies into Cologne, and if you weren't willing to work with them, your people would die. So it was seen as a weak link by the Allies, and a powerful tool to the French. King Louis wrote to his general, Boufflet, quote, 
If they take Vinlo, then Gelders will be lost, and in the end you will be driven from the whole territory of Cologne. End quote. King Louis's letters took on something of a panicked tone here during the summer of 1702. And rightly so. I mean, Venlo fell pretty quickly, and then a bunch of other satellite forts fell to Marlborough's forces. It was something of a disaster for the French, and King Louis was right to be a bit panicky. Then the English marched on Liège. King Louis once again wrote to his general, warning him of the dire consequences that could follow. He said, quote, If they take Liège, the elector of Cologne will have to come to terms with them, this would put them to begin next year's campaign with the siege of Namur, perhaps Luxembourg, and then the frontiers of my country. End quote. And to his credit, King Louis did have a really fantastic grasp of military affairs here. Despite his ever more frantic tone, he predicted everything that was about to happen. He was right. He knew how this was going to play out. But I can't help but imagine Boufflet's reaction to those letters. Just like, oh, really? It's bad that the English keep taking forts? I didn't know that. Thanks, bro. I can't imagine that he was anything but frustrated with his overbearing, micromanaging boss. And it gets worse. I'm not sure if Louis himself personally commanded it, but there were two princes of the blood, that is, men who were in the direct line of the French royal family, that had been with the army, but after these disasters, they left. They departed for Versailles. They didn't want any of the taint of defeat to stain their name. And that's never a good sign when the king's family decides they can't be a part of this. Then, Louis, who was basically freaking out by this point, he ordered Boufflet to send troops from his army to reinforce other key posts on the Lower Rhine and, again, down in Alsace. None of this looked good for Marshal General Boufflet. I'm sure that, with this string of bad news, he could almost hear the butcher sharpening his knives. On the other hand, though, those deployments of troops were necessary. The fortress of Landau, an old French possession on the Rhine, had been taken by the King of Rome, heir to the Holy Roman Empire, and France really needed the fortress at Landau if they were to hold the region. Nonetheless, it was bad news when Boufflet lost like a third of his army overnight. The already overwhelming superiority of the Anglo-Dutch forces was exasperated even further. If I were in his shoes, I would be preparing my affairs. An attack, an almost certainly disastrous attack, was going to come any day now. Any day now. You know, maybe I'll just peek through my fingers and take a look and, uh, nope. No attack. All quiet on the Western Front. So what's going on here? Well, Marlborough really wanted to attack Boufflet. He was trying amazingly hard to get his army into fighting position. And his main force, you know, the force directly under his command, well, they were ready. 
and maybe they could take Boufflet on their own. But the other armies that would have made it a sure thing, they were all commanded by Dutch generals, and the Dutch generals were all busy dining. We've got about half a dozen Dutch commanders, any of whom could come and back Marlborough up, and if they managed to pull it off, they could maybe win this thing. But none of them ever seemed to arrive on time. The French army would move, and then Marlborough would move the Anglo-Dutch army in response, and then he would send orders to the Dutch, and the Dutch just never seemed to be able to get there in time. And this happened over and over and over again, and as the two forces continued to vie for position, the Dutch only fell farther and farther behind. And it's here that all of these failures really begin to paint a picture of purposeful recalcitrance. I mean, you almost have to hope that they're actively trying to undermine Marlborough at this point, because if they aren't, if this isn't on purpose then they really suck at this. By the autumn of 1702, Marlborough and the English were in a pretty good position. They controlled a number of key fort cities that they had not at the beginning of the summer, and when spring came round, they would find themselves with a clear advantage. None of which was thanks to the Dutch generals, of course. Had they done their jobs, they would be in an even better position, a war-winning position. Instead, it was clear they were going to have to fight this thing out. And Marlborough was going to have to do something about these Dutchmen. Next time, while the Anglo-Dutch forces are in winter quarters, we're going to take a detour to the naval front. We're going to be talking about Anglo-Dutch attacks on key French and Spanish positions, but more importantly we're going to be talking about a campaign led by Admiral John Benbow. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who helps to support this show, everybody who has left us ratings or reviews, everybody who has recommended this show, and all of our supporters on Patreon. Without all of you, this wouldn't be possible. So thank you. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, you absolutely should do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com. The Pirate History Podcast is a member of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. If you'd like to check out some of their other fine shows, like The Sit-Down, a Mafia History Podcast, you can do so at airwavemedia.com. As always, and most importantly, thank you for listening.
like this morn the old captain has died let him live on in legend tonight